like D&D fuels their imagination and makes them feel special while drawing them deeper and deeper into the bowels of El Diablo. Observe the previously unobservable. I'm attacking the darkness! (laughs) (laughs) Roll the dice to see if I'm getting drunk! Yeah, you are! Are there any girls there? Yeah! Anyone can play. I don't really know the rules. <laughs> Listen, there aren't any rules. It's a game of the imagination. Oh, okay. This is your character sheet. Your name is Titania. I don't know what any of this stuff means. I'll help you. I'm the dungeon master. I control worlds, universes. Okay, you guys can talk to each other now if you want. Welcome to the 10th episode of DCRPG, the Hero Points podcast. I'm your host, Game Master Siskoid, and with me today is a voice that you've heard on the show before in our landmark Megs vs. Phaser Rip episode several years ago, uh, the author of Only Living Boy and now Only Living Girl, David Gallagher. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me, Siskoid. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, uh, I know you're one of the big fans of this show, and I know it's pretty infrequent, so we're trying to remedy that a little bit. You know, I, I'm serving two purposes at the same time. As I'm giving you content, but you're also participating in it. You're also creating the content. <laughs> Correct. And it's a, it's a tremendous amount of fun. You know, I, I love, you know, you and Shag on the episode I was on talking about Megs versus Phaser Rip was so remarkable. And I think in that episode, I mentioned specifically that the thing I admire about this game was how great the modules are. So I, I'm really excited about being on this particular episode. Yes, we are talking about a module, so spoilers for players. Game Masters, rip the earbuds out of your friend's ears uh, if you're planning to use the, the, the module we're going to talk about. It's for uh, six to eight characters generated using 500 to 1,000 hero points, which is pretty much the, your starting character. Uh, and it stars the Joker. It's called Dream Machine. Uh, this is an adventure for first edition DCH, although pretty easy to adapt, released in 1986, written by Mark Akers. And David, this was your pick for discussion. So in a nutshell, yeah. why this one? Well, uh, I find this of all the modules, one, I think that this is the most on brand because we have the Joker movie coming out mm. on October 4th from DC Comics. I think this also represents a really interesting era of DC Comics where it's the Joker as a lead character. It seems to be much more of the Marshall Rogers, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, era of the Joker, where he's not so uh, over-the-top Heath Ledger. He's much more methodical and inquisitive and inventive. And I think that this particular module deals with an aspect of the Joker we rarely see, which is his ability to invent and his ability to innovate. It's one of the few aspects of the characters we see in the modern era. Really, a lot of the the modules, many of them came out in 86, which is just, you know, we're in the middle of crisis, towards the end of crisis. They're written before crisis. So they're trying to marry. They're not quite sure what's going to happen to these characters yet. So, you know, the era of DCH, especially first edition, really straddles the crisis. So do, we do get characters that seem to be modern enough, 80s enough, and yet maybe throwbacks because continuity changes 
later. And you're right, this is unusual because usually the modules will star, quote unquote, heroes. It will, you know, in the corner will say Teen Titans. The corner will say Outsiders, will say Superman, will say Batman. Uh, but in this case, the Joker, even though this is nominally a Teen Titans adventure, it was written with the Teen Titans in mind, or the new Teen Titans, it does have the Joker logo in the corner instead. And the Titans don't appear on the cover or anything. So to me, that was more, it's a better module in a sense because it says, Use your own heroes. And only when you open the book or when you look at the back cover do you realize that it, it was written for the Titans. But it seems like it's easier. It evokes modifying it, adapting it to your needs more easily because it doesn't have a hero branding on top of it. Yeah, and I think the thing that I find fascinating about this is that it it also calls to mind the limited-run 70s Joker series. If we're thinking back to the Joker as a character, you know, he starred in his own series in the 70s. He even had his own um, starring uh, Hostess Cupcakes ads, <laughs> you know, in the 70s. So there was definitely like this almost cult favorability of the character. So I do love that, and I do I agree with you. There's a an adaptability to this module that I don't think you would get if it was centered specifically on the Teen Titans or centered specifically on any of these other characters. I think knowing that the Joker's involved, it makes it really fascinating. And if I recall correctly, I think this actually predates, uh, slightly predates, the Joker with the Death in the Family era. Yes. So we're still in this maniacal, but not totally over-the-top homicidal version of the Joker yet. Right. So it's a very interesting version of the character, and I think that the cover is very representative of that. Well, let's look at this thing, because it's a new cover. It's usually a new cover. <laughs> I say new cover, but it's always a new cover. They don't use stock art for the covers on these things. Uh, by Dennis Cohen, apparently from a sketch by Ed Hannigan, uh, who had the same credit on the Ambush Bug module, so I guess th this was a thing Ed Hannigan used to do, with inks by Marshall Rogers. So you really do have the Marshall Rogers Joker, because it looks more Marshall Rogers than Dennis Cohen. Right. And this is Dennis Cohen, like, earlier on in his career you know this is i think right around the question era uh it would be just just before yeah so you're you're dealing with these iconic i mean three iconic talents of the 80s who have created and i say this with all love almost a psychedelic bill shinkevich-esque level cover this cover is ludicrous in all the best ways <laughs> like you've got a floating Cheshire cat smile. It looks initially like the Teen Titans tower covered in a, a spade, but really it's a Joker element. And there are all these diamonds and hearts and playing card elements that make the whole thing look just simply out of the box ludicrous. I, I don't think I've seen another DC cover to be this off kilter. I must mention uh, Bob LaRose did the colors, which he usually did on these. Uh, his only misstep is maybe if that's him, if that's even him, the Dream Machine title uh, is in colors that don't really pop out uh, all that well from the green background. I don't think that's him. I don't think he was responsible for yeah, those colors. No black outline around the letters to make them pop. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, it's a very colorful cover, surrealistic, uh, which matches the action of. Well, not. It's not. Nothing here is specifically the action of the story, but it matches the theme of the story and the world 
that the module is going to create. And you're right. At first I thought, oh, there's no, of course, there's no Titans on this. But then, oh, but that's uh, Titan's Tower that's turned into a bridge. But no, it, it is a J. It's not a T, it's a J. So uh, it is all Joker all the time on this one. It, this We're in the Joker's world. Right. And the thing that I, I like a lot is when you zoom in and look really tight on the cover, like on the bridge... That looks like one of the stretched limousines looks like the old Joker mobile. Uh, with the, the Joker's face on, at the front of it. I completely love this, the way that this book looks. Uh, even the background cityscape is made out of Joker cards and uh, dominoes. And, you know, uh, there's a lot to love here. There's a lot of water here as well, which actually turns up in the story itself. So, you know, it's sort of giving us hints. But if a player came across this, they wouldn't necessarily know what they were in for. And that's actually what's nice about the back cover copy, which is what I was going to uh, take a chance to read, where it says, Beware, your wildest dreams may come true. Deep in Arkham Asylum, a wild-eyed man claws at the walls. He gibbers and shouts about a mysterious dwarf with the power to make dreams come true. The doctors do not listen. He was just another wandering madman sent here from New York City. The police do not listen. They're too busy to investigate the babblings of a madman. Friends, family, no one listens. No sane person dares to listen. No sane person at all. But the inmates in Arkham are not sane. Some of them are dangerous. The most dangerous of them is the Joker. He believes. He listens. He plans. The Teen Titans don't stand a chance. <laughs> Except for the end there, this could be a module for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and what's fascinating about this back cover copy is that we're using, you know, it's all the suits of the cards. There's diamonds, hearts, uh, spades, and, and clovers or clubs. And what I find so fascinating is none of these colors are really like the traditional playing card covers. It's like blue hearts and green spades and you know, so they're, they're really trying to create this off-kilter, unusual look and feel, a psychedelic effect for this book. And I'm all in for it, Siskoid. <laughs> and we, we were all in because, as we'll talk about later, we both have played this module. We both have uh, game mastered it. Yeah, and one of the things I find so fascinating about this one is how – I find it very nuanced – you know, I think that there's a lot here in terms of, I know we'll go into it a little bit more, but one of the things that's nice is it takes the players from a predictable world into something very unpredictable where you're dealing with a lot of characters' perceptions. And with a little bit of modification, I think it could work for like a 5,000 point character or a 20,000 point character, well, probably not a 20,000 point character, but you get the idea <laughs> yeah. is that it, it could scale up, I think, because you're taking the players from this this element of familiarity to this whole other dimension. And I think that's one of the reasons that it works even across other games. This is a module that, as you'll see, you could theoretically use not just outside the DC universe, but in non-superhero games. You know, it would work in a science fiction game. It would work in a because it, it does give you tools uh, that you could adapt for 
other types of uh, gameplay. Let's get into it. Okay, sure. Well, spoiler warning, I guess. This is the part where it gets spoilery. We're not going to go through it encounter by encounter, but rather we'll tell it like a story. In fact, I'm going to read directly from the book's synopsis. And um, even before the, the, the book's synopsis, there is the story that comes before, what happened before. In short, uh, it's a little bit like what David was reading from the back cover copy, but the whole story is that Desaad... Darkseid's um, torturer is on Earth, and he's experimenting with this dream machine, which is a uh, a device that can project people inside the sleeper's dream. So he's picking people up from off the street, uh, transients and whatever, uh, people that won't be missed. And uh, he's making them go insane, torturing them with... His own dreams, I guess, because he must be the sleeper in these, uh, in this scenario. And, but they're physically drawn into a world that is probably disturbing. I don't know what Desaad dreams about, although we do find out a little bit about that in the, uh, in the course of the scenario. But Desaad's dreams are obviously disturbing. So people wind up, uh, in the madhouse in Arkham Asylum. In that case, that's where the Joker learns of this device. You know, he listens, he believes. And he tracks down Desaad prior to this module happening. He steals the dream machine and he uh, holds himself up in New York City because let's attack the, let's test this out on not Batman, but Nightwing on the New Teen Titans who are less of a threat, I guess. Right. He wanted a challenge, but he didn't want too much of a challenge. <laughs> Training wheels. Is what this is. Right. Absolutely. Let me open up the book on page um, on page four and uh, read a little bit from the synopsis. It's basically what your character, what your players are going to be run through. It goes like this. It begins with the Joker's attempt to kidnap Nightwing, thereby luring both Nightwing and the Teen Titans into the trap he has set with the Sod's dream machine. Eventually, the player characters will confront Joker at his hideout the back room of Madame Lethe's fortune-telling establishment. Joker immediately falls into a chemically-induced sleep, and the player characters are drawn into the dream world. The encounters provide a set series of events that can happen in the dream world. These events can be altered in detail or even in total as the player characters discover that they can manipulate the dream if they make that discovery. If all goes according to plan, though, the player characters find themselves at a banquet and dance hosted by a convention of novelty item salesmen. This is the opening of the Joker's dream and should be played for laughs all the way. It's not necessary, but the GM might even supply a few novelty items such as whoopee cushions, a squirting flower, or a tray full of custard pies to use as props during this encounter. We'll talk about that. Uh, the player characters quickly learn, however, that whatever this place is, it's deadly. The dream setting changes from a hotel ballroom to the ballroom of a doomed uh, ocean liner. It's the Titanic, where the player characters are attacked by malicious snowmen. After this battle, the player characters are recruited by the ship's crew to help save the passengers, many of whom are doomed to drown. Before the player characters can put a plan into effect, the ship turns into a model ship. The ocean changes through the water in a bathtub, and the player characters are literally sucked down the drain with the ship. The heroes eventually arrive at a desert island where they confront a truly terrifying dream creature. Success here paves the way for, to victory over the Joker, as victorious player characters will discover the clue needed to awaken the Joker from his dream and release themselves back into the real world. I'm not saying. But the real world can be just as deadly because Desaad is hot on the Joker's trail and soon confronts the Joker and the player characters in an attempt to get his dream machine back. 
Unless they're very astute or very lucky, the player characters will suddenly find themselves back in the dream world, only this time the dream is Desaad's. And they are pawns in a deadly game between Desaad's images of authority and desire, twin images of dark side. Q crapping their pants. Now, the player characters <laughs> must defeat or escape the images of dark side, awaken Desaad, and end the nightmare for good. I think what's interesting, too, is that there's an actual synopsis here. One of the things that I, I love about the way that Mayfair sets up these modules is sometimes a module is a lot to read, you know, in one sitting. Mm-hmm. But the synopsis really gives you everything you need to, to know to set up the game, to really know what to expect. And I, I really enjoy that. And there's a, a fantastic adventure flow chart that I think gives a lot of flexibility. You know the way that the, the adventure is going to start and ideally the way the adventure is going to end. You know what the axe structures are going to be like. So you know you're going to confront the Joker. You're going to go into his dreams, et cetera, et cetera. You know you're going to come out. And ultimately, even though the Joker is the inciting incident, he's really just the fake. He's like the big bad but not the big big bad you know he's like the a boss in a a video game you know what i mean he's like the small boss the mini boss but here desaad and the duplicates of dark side are are really the big bosses right uh when you think it's over it's not quite over there's like that last scare is actually pretty scary (laughs) yeah i mean that and i love that just right after the synopsis there's a flow chart there's a timetable, an investigation chart so it really sets up everything you need to get going in terms of like okay, I, I have the basic information, so then let's really get into like the characters and, and who would be... Obviously, this is a Joker-centric module, but I love how they then lead in from the synopsis into the heroes and the characters you'll be playing. Let's talk about that front matter. Uh, the characters that they give us, the places they give us, and a new power as well. First of all, they don't spend any time, too much time, reiterating the stats for the Teen Titans. Sometimes these modules do. If they say, you're going to play the Outsiders, you're going to get full stats for the Outsiders, even though the Outsiders are in the main box. But the Teen Titans are in the main box. Here, they just cover like a wrist radios and uh, Changeling's gorilla form. So maybe they're they're making, they're tweaking what was in the main right. box. Yeah. The thing that I found really interesting is the cures that are in, that they suggest, are Nightwing, Changeling, Cyborg, Jericho, Starfire, and Wonder Girl. Notice Raven's not in that set, nor is Kid Flash. Because they would break the scenario. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I, I love how they, they've been very, very specific. Like, Raven would break the scenario with her dream powers and her psychic powers. And Kid Flash, I think, is is a little too powerful to, to be in the setting. But this is a problem that Game Masters always contend with in uh, in superhero games. Because the modules may be written for specific characters, but you will often use your own. And or not have the entire crew. I mean, that, that's a lot of characters to have around a table. You might not have all those players. Because superheroes are can, can be anything. It's not as easy as saying it's for, um, you know, a balanced party of fighters, magic users. and No, no, no. You know, you could have a team of literally any grouping of powers and abilities. So you always have to tweak and adapt a module to your needs. It's never going to quite fit. And sometimes you will have a character that that is game-breaking, like Raven, in your game. Yeah. So you've got to think about these things. Basically, we get a few notes there, and then we jump into villains. So here we do get the Joker, and we do get Desaad, and, uh, of course, all the dream creatures, because we're going to go into a dream world, so all the dream creatures have stats as well, although they're very 
adaptable uh, and very flexible because they could have various powers depending on their look and whatever the dream is actually about. So a couple of things that really uh, made this section stand out for me were, one, I love that we get to Saad's stats. Obviously, we know that he's going to be the big bad. We get the stats for the Dream Machine. Both of those are fantastic. Where I found it very interesting, uh, in particular, was how they sort of positioned the Joker. So not only does Joker get two new tricks up his sleeve, he gets Joker's itching powder and then the sleeping gas capsule, which is used in conjunction with the Dream Machine. One of the things I found very interesting in reading Joker's stats was everything looked pretty great. Obviously, he artist, actor, uh, gadgeteer, scientist, you know, all that stuff sounded fantastic. The thing that I found uh, very interesting was where it says vulnerabilities, magnetic control. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> that looks like I don't, a, I, that looks like a mistake, a cut and paste problem from some other file. Yeah, I found that. Did you think that that was also unusual? I, I thought it was like a typo of some sort because magnetic control nine is the way you would write a power. That that is not how DC heroes works as far as. Uh, any kind of vulnerability there. So uh, this is like, I don't think he does have a vulnerability. I don't think, because he doesn't have any powers, the, the limitations would be it. And so magnetic control is like something, it does not belong in this module at all. There's no place, there's no magnets <laughs> anywhere. Uh, so I think that that was a, uh, a flub there, uh, a problem with the copy editing. So as a GM, you would not include that? No. <laughs> okay. It wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't mean anything uh, yeah, in game I was, I was, I was thinking like, uh, as I was reading it, I was like, did Joker have like his own utility belt at this time? Did it make him like, cause you know, Joker had for a while his own utility belt. I was like, is there something in the module specifically? So I kept finding myself asking about Joker's like, I kept reading, trying to figure that out. Yeah, but yeah. Um, aside from that, yeah, I, I found uh, a lot of these things to be incredibly interesting in terms of not just, obviously we talked about the, we talked about the heroes, but I love that they included Changeling's gorilla form. And I loved, uh, I thought the write-ups of the villains in particular, even though they're in, I think, the main set, I love that they included them again because it, I think it's important to have them here. I do love that itching powder thing. Uh, the mechanic for it is basically just an attack on your, your health, on your body, but it doesn't cause damage. It just causes you to lose control, nervous control, basically. So that's pretty cool. And when you look at all these dream creatures it is a trope in these modules that you will have enemies like cannon fodder basically uh, disposable threats for the heroes to fight usually to train up the players in their their skills and powers because if you are playing with the teen titans maybe you're just picking this up and okay these are the characters you're just distributing the characters and people have there's a learning curve uh, when you're not playing the same character over and over so that may be it or it's just like to create fighting opportunities which are a fairly big element of role-playing fights um, not everybody uses them not everybody wants to, to, to play that kind of stuff but uh, modules always provide fights and you don't want to be fighting supervillains or the Joker over and over or anything like that in your story. So you'll need disposables, thugs, creatures, in this case, anxiety monsters uh, that will turn up that can be beaten to zero and it won't really affect the plot. So, Well, it's not like Marvel where you kill the creatures and you lose all your karma. No, no. So, 
one of the things I was going to say is one of the aspects that's nice about this too is that these nightmare monsters also sort of unlike regular thugs these nightmare monsters i find really help establish the setting and the tone of the situation more than like regular cannon fodder characters i think that these really highlight how different this adventure is than others yeah because usually i'd say that this trope um usually it's going to be like robots there's no consequences to to, to unleashing the full fury of your powers but in this case well Similarly, I don't think there's much of a consequence to destroying one of these creatures, but there's a lot more variety there. You can do a lot more, and there's like a there is a picture where you, you've got you know uh, scarecrows and bears and goblins and snakes and uh, all sorts of monsters, and it can be a lot more fun to do than just oh yet another. Especially if you're playing often and you're always using modules, fights with robots. It's like every every villain has a has a robot army or something, but in this case. It's a dream army. I'm forgetting my 80s culture, but wasn't this also around the time of like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street? Nightmare on Elm Street for sure, yeah. I think this is also calling to mind um, some of those 80s slasher movies, you know, with pumpkin-headed creatures and axe maniacs and stuff, which I I find really, really interesting in, in terms of like enhancing that level of horror. If played right, this could feel... I think you'd mentioned before Call of Cthulhu. This could feel like a very Call of Cthulhu style horror adventure. Definitely. And there's, uh, uh, if we look at, like, this module per se, you know, gives you, obviously, you could change the world. The dream could change. But the, the, the Joker's dreams aren't necessarily horrific. But then, if you used it differently or with different dreaming characters, you could actually play this as a horror scenario quite easily. And it would work quite well. Because let's talk about that dream world, because they give us the rules of the world, and then they don't use every rule in the story itself. So they're giving you this in case you want to just, you know, go wild uh, or make it a recurring motif if, you know, if the heroes wind up with the dream machine, and then you can do other dream machine plots. Uh, or if you want to use this in other ways. So I could easily find my, myself playing this. You know, there, how many Star Trek scenarios look feel like this? <laughs> you know? Right. right, exactly, so, with a holodeck or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. So you could use this uh, in a mind-bending space opera. You could use this uh, in a horror game. You could use this in a variety of different genres, so long as the dream machine or a dream artifact could exist. Uh, so what do you think of this? world that the, the the dream world where they even give us a view of it it's, it's a sphere with a a cylinder in the middle of it it's separated ego and you know the id the ego and the super ego are all things within this world what do you think of this i love the structure of this so you know the physical laws of the dream world like change sort of on a whim but i love that it it almost feels like the rainbow bridge or the yagastril in Norse mythology, there's definitely like a, a roadmap to where you are in, in a character's psyche. And yes, it's very Freudian in, in its breakdown of like the id, ego, and superego, but you could easily make it a, a map of any other different aspect of human psychological theory. I love the delineation here. I, I feel like there's a lot of solid world building. And especially when we get into the development of things like the language center and the sight center and the hearing center, 
I mean, what a, an opportunity to really gauge your players and, and challenge them on a sensory level in a way that you might not have the opportunity to challenge them in, in other supplements here. Because there is a, a an element of this that is going to be a mystery as to what's happening. We know it's called Dream Machine. We know they're inside a dream, but they're just going to wake up somewhere, you know, and not know what's happening. Will they make that leap? And of course, the way the, the, the brain here, I guess the brain, the mind is set up, there are clues all along the way. Okay, this is why this is happening. And so you, if you can figure out the psychological logic, then you can figure out how to get out of this scenario is, is the basically the, the trick here. They set up cues for what things are going to look like. So as a GM, you have plenty of opportunities to really pull up like how things in the hearing center might work, you know, or how things in the sight center might work. And there are so many different clues and, and words and descriptors you can use to keep your players on edge. Because ultimately, like I said before, I think that the unknown is what makes this particular game so interesting. There is this feeling of mystery that sort of keeps the players on their toes. And I, I love that. And I love that ability to really mess with players. I love messing with players. And um, I love how the dream creatures also operate differently in each sphere of the centers of the, the dream world. Mm. I, I absolutely love that because they're like, in the touch center, the monsters are going to try to get closer to you. I'm like, oh my god, that's so cool. And it's tit for tat because you're screwing with the players, but they have an opportunity to screw with you, which I think is an interesting idea as well. Uh, and I'm the kind of game master that likes to give his players a lot of leeway and to challenge me on, on the improv side of things. Some games I improv completely. Some games I have tightly scripted. Some games I'm I'm using a module like this. You know, uh, so it is tightly scripted, but I want the players to throw curveballs. I think that the curveballs are what's interesting for the game master. Uh, so in this, as the, the module goes on, it tells you about a power called dream manipulation, which you cannot buy as a hero because I, I don't think it would be very useful unless you were like Night Mask or I don't know, Sandman or, or Doctor Strange, maybe, maybe fighting Nightmare. But then in any case, if you walk into a into a dream world, you automatically have this power. You can't buy it, but if you're in a dream, you can do lucid dreaming tricks, basically, uh, is what they're saying. So this power allows the, the players to change elements. Not every element, like a certain element. It's like concentrate on something and then the rest, you know, that will that will change, and but the rest will stay the same or that, that will motivate how the dream changes, just like dream logic, basically. So this is a fun way for players who realize what's going on. And basically, I like to think of it as, you know, while they don't know they have the power, you're treating them like Johnny Thunder in the Golden Age. Before he realizes that he's saying a magic word and that's activating the Thunderbolt. You know, say you, whatever, and then you will be giving them effects that they created themselves, but they don't know they're doing it. So that's a cool idea. And then once they know they can do it, then all hell breaks loose and, it, you know, your scenario is off the rails in an entertaining way. That's exactly it, is that you're empowering players to do something that's just totally different and unique. And I think that that makes a, for a lot of fun. Once they feel they have a degree of significance in this world, 
it makes everything so much more interesting. So you, you've screwed with them, you know, you've messed around with them and their expectations. But once they realize that they can control to a very limited degree, the world around them, I think it makes it interesting. You know, it, it gives them, it allows them to play sort of on a, an even playing field, you know, and I think that that's why um, removing a character like Raven from this module makes such a difference. They're fixing something as well, because I think the problem that could crop up with something like this, where anything can happen, is that, well, anything can happen, so nothing matters. The players know you're screwing with them at that point. Right. But if they have agency, that changes everything. That's exactly it, is when you constantly screw with them and they don't feel like they have any agency, it doesn't become fun. You know, and that becomes a real challenge is you want the players to feel like they have a lot of fun in doing what they're doing. Let's look at the plot. I've cut it up into three acts, basically. The first one is the setup. In the setup, this is basically the part where Nightwing or your own character gets kidnapped and uh, brought to Madame Lethe's or else he doesn't get kidnapped and the characters follow the breadcrumbs to Madame Lethe's. And that's where the Joker springs the trap on them. Now, I think the one point I would bring here is that it's always big trouble uh, when you're trying to capture a player character. And this module knows it. So it gives you both options. Maybe Nightwing gets captured. Quite probably he doesn't. So here's what happens if he doesn't, you know, because it's hard for players to accept that they will be captured. I don't know if you've had this problem. I have. And that's actually the part of the things that are in this game. That's the part that I, I really sort of find a lot of challenge with because you're literally removing player agency. When you have a player get kidnapped, it's literally removing all their choices. I mean, and I think that there could have been a different way to set this up to get you into the heart of the action. I mean, but how often in like the cartoons is Batman kidnapped or knocked out or the villain escapes? How would you do it differently than having Nightwing get kidnapped? It tells you what to do if he doesn't. Um, so it, it's not a big issue. One of the things I do, uh, which I picked up from the Doctor Who role-playing game, not the FASA one, the, the, the Cubicle 7 version, which I've played right. a, a good deal. The way they, they set it up, because it is a trope in Doctor Who. The companion gets captured, or the heroes find their way into a cell. And that just propels the narrative, really. It's, it's a good chance to be closer to the villains, right? To be on the inside. Uh, that happens a lot on TV shows. Now, when you do that, when you accept this in the Doctor Who RPG, the Game Master can give the option. You are given story points, which is the equivalent of hero points here. So you get a reward for putting yourself in more danger, basically. That reward can allow you to get out of danger later, more or less. So there is a balance there where, for narrative purposes, for story purposes, you will accept something bad to happen to you. It's a choice, and the players don't need to don't have to take it, but it is a way out is when you have a group that is more story oriented rather than rolling the dice and open ended kind of uh, orientation to, to, to the group. I don't think that works with everyone. It happens to work with my players. I um, particularly like how this is set up in a fortune teller's workshop. I think there's something about like this idea of a fortune teller. I think that aspect of it is so gothic. And the way I, I think I would set this up is a little bit differently, but to have the players feel like they're getting their fortunes, like they're somehow driven to talk to the fortune teller who's giving out free tarot card readings with 
playing cards. And then as she doles them out towards the players in like real game time, she could pull out a joker card and set up the whole scenario. So there's an actual like element to it where they're investigating her and talking to her. And there's a, an element of showmanship. Oh, come in. Let me read your cards. Oh, I see you're hot on the trail of something by creating this elaborate sideshow and either the Joker pops up and he just, you know what I mean? But I think that there's an opportunity to set it up with a level of theatricality that gives them agency to investigate the fortune teller and come in and, and see a show and, and have it feel, I don't know, kind of x filesy like, is she telling us real stuff? You know, like set up something really interesting that, that gets the player's attention and then set up the, the MacGuffin that get, gets them in, but then reel them in then with the Joker reveal. Right. popping out whether some anyway that's that's sort of how i would do it a little differently i like it i like it especially since they set her up for no no real reason i mean there's no uh plot uh, reason for this but that that she has like holographic machines and she's faking seances and there is a reason to to go there for some there is more to madame lethe she could be a recurring villain already in your campaign sort of thing and th there might be other reasons why they go there because she's scamming people, obviously. Right, exactly. And that's sort of, I found that they were leaving story opportunities on the table. So as a GM, I would probably, if I were to run this now, probably beef up that role and make it sort of the, the engine that gets the story moving. And it could be a red herring as well, because she's got holographic technology. We're in this weird world. They're thinking holograms. They're thinking holodeck. And that's not what's happening. Yeah. The middle part, the middle dreams, I guess, uh, of, of this thing. The pie fight, the Titanic, Albert Einstein as Humpty Dumpty, um, the animated uh, Joker card that attacks later. I love that, by the way. I love the Joker card. The picture of it, I think they've drawn their own Joker thing, but used stock art for the Teen Titans in front of it. It's a nice composite. Shows the card shooting beams, and, and the stats don't do that. But obviously, you could do anything you want with that Joker card. It doesn't have to just be a sort of smothering element or sharp edges element. You you could give it any powers you want because it's a dream creature. And all the dream creatures can be, you know, varied if you like. What about this bit with the <laughs> with the um, the cream pies? The pie fight. Uh, the, the game <laughs> suggests that you might want to stage a real pie fight with your players if their character is amenable, but also if whoever owns your play area is amenable to it. I don't know that I would do that. I, I'm, a, I'm big on doing crazy stunts like that, but that seems entirely too messy for the start of an adventure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know about... So when you game, do you generally game in your house? Yeah. Yeah, so my players and I usually play at a bar, and uh, when I ran this scenario... With the Titanic, I actually had a soundtrack. The bar actually, because it was empty at the time, let me play Autumn and then Near My God to Thee, which are the last two songs that were played during the sinking of the Titanic. Oh, wow. And I got to play them on loop. Sure. So when you're in the Titanic thing, uh, I let my players do uh, like a, a knowledge check to see if they recognize the song and then make the connection that they were on the Titanic. But no pie fights. <laughs> no pie fights. But that sort of unsettling feeling of like, why is there music playing? Oh, do I recognize that song? Oh, you know, like set it up 
So there's auditory clues that the players would feel like they could get. Well, I don't know how unsettling it would be in one of my games because I soundtrack my games quite often. Yeah, you know, it, it can be just for the action or it can be for, you know, characters have their own themes, that kind of stuff. But rarely is it diegetic, let's say. Although it can be, I once, uh, I once uh, used the soundtrack, I mean, the entire Woodstock festival. What? What was happening <laughs> in certain hours? Yeah, at, at the time I found it, I, there was probably some sort of box set or something. You know, I stole it off the internet, I admit it, not to listen to it, but just to use at such at such an hour it's people getting sick on the site so when there's announcements i use those announcements but also the music in front or in back of it in a doctor who game where some of the the stars were involved in the um, in the scenario uh, like janice joplin was some sort of time agent or something so but i use the show as a background and actually the actual show just to show off i guess one example uh, that sounds like yours that that yeah. you know, that that's great it's like this is actually the the sound of the the setting and once you realize that's what's going on if they do then that informs the action instead of just saying it outright that's what's really interesting is that there's a real palpable like opportunity to to use these settings in a, in a great way. I've never used any of the other props when you ran this game. No, no, not this one. Did your players help save the passengers? Is that, is that one of yeah, the things they, they did? Yeah, they spent a lot of time trying to save the passengers, and then it became a real... When we ran this game, it became like a real scary. Like, they felt like it was a kind of very ominous. Once they realized that they were on the Titanic, it became very ominous. Yeah, because I've used a Titanic in like a time travel game once as well. It, it's yeah, it's a ticking clock. It's a natural ticking clock, and everybody knows about it, uh, whether or not they remember the details. Although the the James Cameron film certainly helps, you know, for people to have it in their collective conscious. But of course, they don't need to do it because it's all fake. It's all it's in a dream, right? And it's all gonna once they they start doing it, it will be it will turn out to be futile. Because then, you you know, you've got your Albert Einstein figure that appears, which I think is another red herring. Makes you think it's about quantum realities, it's parallel worlds. The module is, is set up so that it set up a mystery, but there are several solutions that seem credible. What did you think about... So I love the dream ballroom. I love the setup. Without spoiling too much of it, I love that it it's basically sets up like it's inside a... Like a novel, the American Novelty Items Players Association, like association. I love that there's a, um, despite the sense of danger, the sense of comedy that is also kind of a weird distraction for the players. So it's amazing to sort of have this unusual event. Um, it, it's sort of super, super cathartic because they're saying like somebody's yelling pie fight as like the orchestra plays like the Blue Danube. You know, like there's a, a real spectacular setup. And then, of course, very much speaking of Doctor Who, very much like Doctor Who, like suddenly snowmen attack. <laughs> like, yeah. I felt like uh, reading this, I felt like it was like reading like uh, like watching one of those Moffat seasons of Doctor Who. So they're trying to do surreal, but they're also doing the Joker. It has to be the Joker's dream. So you've got the, the sort of jokes. And in fact... And I don't think I realized this at, at the time, but it's on the Titanic because you're playing with the Titans. It's a pun. Oh my god, I missed that completely. So had I known, our players were called the Crusaders. It's a pretty generic superhero team name that's been used by several superhero teams in comics. Would I have then 
if I had bugged on this, could I have done the Crusades instead? Like, like change the historical event to something that's more that's closer to their names, as if they were maybe you know the the fly in the ointment. They're in the dream, and they're already already affecting the dream. Is it the Joker making a joke about their name, or is it that the Crusaders are in there, and so they affect the Joker's dream? And uh, that yeah. might have been an early clue to what's going on. Man, that's so clever. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny reading this. I forget about how much how much they really take the time to to really think a lot of these elements through. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's one of my most favorite supplements because we're, we're not just setting up the Titanic. Obviously we're setting up so many different surreal elements. I mean, I think getting into what we've said before about Albert Einstein, that's a really unusual setup because they come to Albert Einstein and he's, yeah, he's like Humpty Dumpty. No, it's, it's like bizarre imagery. Uh, in a world where Batman also fights Tweedledum and Tweedledee. So, <laughs> and he's the Cheshire Cat in this, but they don't really make a point of it, except on the cover, maybe. And I, I didn't even mention the Mad Hatter, obviously. They're, <laughs> you know, the Batman universe has a thing with Alice in Wonderland. There, there's some of that stuff going on there as well, you know, that sort of morphing fairy tale kind of quality. I want to talk about the ending, um, because there's two ways to get to it. You you can be beaten or not. Does the sod show up before they get out or not? You know, that, that sort of stuff. But it's really the that final scenario where they're inside the sod's dream. And you're they're being ping-ponged by two dark sides because this crazy notion that the sod's id and superego are dark side. <laughs> you know, that he's sort of preeminent in his mind. But the problem I have with it is that the dark sides are blasting the heroes back and forth, and the Joker, he's in there, um, blasting them with 30 APs of Omega Beams, which is pretty killer. So I think the way I played it, and I don't have any proof of that because, um, you know, it's just how I would play it now, maybe. I, I probably would have reduced that to a puzzle because it's about how do I we wake up Desaad? How do we get out of this dream scenario? That's the real complexity rather than... How do we do this? But also, there's the whole hit point attrition problem. So you're probably going to get knocked out before you get any chance to solve it uh, psychologically. For me, uh, running this, you know, I think that there was an opportunity to to use because the players are in Desad's dream. They have the opportunity to access the dream control powers that's true yeah so i i didn't look at it as like a i looked at it as an opportunity to for them to be creative here who's to say that they can't create some sort of gestalt character who has you know like there's opportunities for them to do some fun creative inventive things based on each of the the things that they've gone through obviously they were on the titanic and confronted albert einstein and they battled the crazy giant Joker playing card. But I think that, and I like the idea of ping-ponging back and forth between like the id and the superego, but there's so much, there is a puzzle there. It's like, how do you beat the id? I mean, how do you beat the ego rather, you know, and, mm-hmm. or how do you use your dream control powers to create a different scenario, whether it's like creating debris or tripping dark side or creating dream control, like blinders that blind his eyes or, Whatever. There's a real opportunity there to do some unusual things. Um, so I was really interested in that. I mean, obviously, it's it's very dangerous 
because there is the whole hit point attrition thing. But I also think that there is a, a tremendous opportunity to, to really have the players here. They've been sort of led bit by bit by all this crazy stuff. So here is the opportunity I find for them to master and control the dream space. Right. Um, after having been in Joker's world, in Darkseid's world, take the skills that they've learned from Joker's world and bring them here. That's that's really what I'm I'm hoping uh, in running this game, and I'm I'm inspired now to run it again. Is is what they're able to do here is become master of that world in a very like Joseph Campbell kind of way. And it's great for afterwards because then the players can brag that they beat Darkseid in a way. Because this is the, one of the reasons that this is such a, a great scenario to use, uh, especially in a DCU-centric uh, game, because there's a scope there. You know, you get to interact with the Joker, one of the greatest villains in the DCU. And then, but there's also the new gods in this. So it's Gotham City and the new gods uh, wrapped into one and also creates a world that is generic in the sense that it's all your own within there's like a bottle universe inside your little bit of dcu so the the fact that it that it goes so many places means it works with so many different kind of characters and it certainly works with your own heroes quote unquote that's one of the reasons that it works so well and that you can fit it into even though you don't necessarily have the joker versus nightwing uh setup depending on which heroes you're using, it can still fit almost any campaign and you'll feel like you've touched on a broader part of the DC universe as well. Yeah, and I think that that's what makes it very interesting, you know? And and one of the things that's nice too is that it sets up plot points so that you've beaten Desaad, right? So what does Darkseid do when... I mean, so you think you've beaten Darkseid in the dreams, right? With his 30 AP Omega Beams. But what happens when you have to confront the real Darkseid? Because he comes to your home, Mr. Miracle style. He just shows up right. in your living room. And it's like, yes, I've heard you've been bragging about beating me. Or <laughs> that sort of thing. Totally a Darkseid thing to do, I think. I, I like him in domestic situations. I played this game. I don't have much memory of it. I have very few notes about it. I did go over two sessions because I've got it down to my website as two different issues of the Crusaders comic. So I pretty much use it as is, I think. Uh, but you played it as well, but I, very differently. Right. I had basically used the same premise and the same sort of structure of like meeting Albert Einstein and being on the Titanic, but I used it for a Marvel phase rip game. So instead of using the Joker proper, I used Mysterio and he had hacked Cerebro and the Danger Room technology. So he'd used all the Shear technology to create this elaborate scenario. And literally point by point, it's almost every element of this module just modified. And one of the things I found so fascinating about this scenarios how incredibly adaptable it is for, for everything let's create our own universe kind of thing and a technology that can be used and a mechanic that can be used in almost any kind of game uh, except the most realistic ones probably you know and even those you know you could do a sort of dream episode where you ha you have a certain maybe it's like a solo story in that case where you don't have any supernatural elements but you have to wake yourselves, yourself up from night terrors or something. It could be an, an interesting diversion. Now, but if we do use it as a superhero game, and we're today, because my game was 80s centric, but used their own 
characters. It happened, basically, it happened in 1988 for us, uh, which was the setting that we, we picked for it, even though we played uh, decades later. Let's say we're playing it today. What characters might you use? What what kind of team might you use? Do the new Teen Titans still work? I think the new Teen Titans, uh, the basic Titans, I think, are still essentially Wonder Girl, you know, Robin, or Nightwing, Aqualad. I think you could use this adventure well with your standard Titans from the modern era, like your Jeff Johnsy era, your Cyborg, your Starfire. Again, probably not Raven, maybe not Kid Flash. But I think, you know, using this with like Cassandra Sandsmark or Tim Drake or Beast Boy, I think that all those characters still work in a basic scenario here. I, I, I think Joker's motivation of fighting Nightwing would work whether it was jason todd or tim drake or even damien so i do think that there's a lot of flexibility there and i think that you could use it not just for the teen titans but also a little bit more modern i think it it plays out well with using even characters like connor kent or john kent or the young justice team you know impulse and and that sort of team so i do think that it could convert really really well to you know the modern era desaad hasn't really changed that much dark side hasn't really changed that much and joker even though he has gone through these eras of change they're still like iconography to these stories that i think really translates very well so i i do find that it, it's pretty adaptable to the modern era without a, a lot of changes really what about you it could be played like you said earlier it could be played with much higher point value characters I'd even, in the modern era, and I say modern, I kind of mean the heyday of the, the pre-reboot, the pre... Uh, Rebirth. Pre-New 52, whatever, you know, the, the the longer stretch of DC Universe. I don't know. I, I'd want to introduce Sandman into this. You know, I'd want Dream to show up, maybe as a game master, not necessarily as a player character. Oh, yeah, this is pre-Sandman, pre-Vertigo. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to have him just show up at the end or something. Not necessarily in a way that's anticlimactic. I'd let the heroes win, but he'd be a great character to show up uh, when they can't beat the scenario sort of thing. He's kind of peeved that the new gods are playing in his garden. Oh, that would set up such an amazing adventure. Because then it's Dream versus the new gods. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Oh, my. Pardon the pun. Can you imagine that? Like Dream versus like Darkseid? Yeah, I mean, that's where I, I think that you might be able to play with the Endless or something, make this something even bigger. I'd love to play a game where first you play the Groundlings, the Titans level characters, but then the sequel, the players get to play the Endless or they get to play people from Dreaming or, you know. Oh, yeah, you could like literally scale it up. So it could be like a. A three-part or a four-part adventure, you play the first wave of heroes. You play, like, the Young Justice, then Teen Titans, then Justice League, mm -hmm. then the New Gods, then the Endless. Oh, my God. You could, like, literally span that whole thing across so a really cool – oh, imagine, like – Remember those old Marvel annuals from like the 80s and 90s where it was like the Evolutionary War? Right. You could literally scale up. Oh, oh, Cisco, you're a genius. <laughs> well, I have my moments. Uh, but this is also – the module gives you mechanics that you can adapt for your own Black Mercy story. Yeah. You know, oh, that kind of stuff. Man. Because it's exactly the same kind of idea. And we've seen that repeated. We see the Black Mercy story even on TV now. So yeah. you could do this kind of or in, during the their invasion event, the CW. I mean, there's a moment where we're in a shared dream with the Green Arrow people. Uh, this is the mechanic 
that you could be using for adapted to your needs, but you know, sending heroes into the dream world is a trope. This just happens to play with that trope and give you all the mechanics you need. It really doesn't matter who you're doing this with. It is infinitely adaptable, and you've got all the stats for it. And I think it's pretty loose as a structure in any case. Played as is, you know, it gets you in the room with a couple of major DC villains uh, that then you can brag about. Because I think anytime my players touched somebody big, whether it's, you know, through these modules, you know, Brainiac or something, uh, whenever they're not just beating on, I'm going to name Bolt or Deadline, or something, you know, suddenly it's an event. The, the moment where Superman comes in and thanks them for their help or something, even though, he, you know, he's just like a side character, is a big moment for newbies. You know, characters are just making their way into the world, your own heroes. In one adventure, you get to see the Joker and Darkseid. Man, that's uh, that's something to talk about. Yeah, and I, I now I'm inspired to run it again. So thank you so much, Discord, for having me on and, and talking about this. Sure. Um, you want to promote anything that you're working on right now? People who uh, love me talking about this, I, uh, I'm the co-host of a podcast called For the Love of Comics. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, I'm writing The Only Living Girl for Paper Cuts, as well as I just finished Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint, which comes out October 4th. Uh, it's available for the PlayStation 4 and the, uh, the Xbox. Nice. Uh, so all sorts of gaming. All sorts of gaming. All sorts of gaming. Role-playing gaming to video gaming to comic books. I'm, I'm there. I hope you'll stop by again. We can talk about another of these products together. Let's replace Shag. <laughs> I won't say that. Well, I, I will. Do we need, like, hero points to do that? I think uh, just like a flat 50 uh, should oh. do it. <laughs> or let's get into the dream world and just, like, change one element. We love you, Shag. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for having me, Siskoid. This was an absolute pleasure. Uh, well, thanks, David. And I'll uh, I'll let you go back to your life and uh, and your writing. And I will stick around for feedback from the previous episode. Stick around. Hey there. Welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero. So let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. We're now heading to fireandwaterpodcast.com for your comments on the previous episode, in which I and Ryan Daly sat down and talked about two of his favorite characters and their stats, which is to say Black Canaries and Zatanna's. Well, you just heard from David Gallagher at length, but uh, he did leave a comment on that episode. He says, I had both of these characters in my recent Phaser Rip game using the Squadron Supreme as a model. He goes on to say he basically used the Squadron's stats for the Marvel superheroes game and then supplemented by uh, going over the Meg system for cross-reference. 
Then we have Alan W. Wright says, I find it very hard to believe that Green Arrow is of greater or even equal intelligence to Black Canary. I'd say if he was a 6, then Black Canary would be at least 6.5, which, you know, the DC Heroes game doesn't actually work with decimals. I certainly don't see him as a better detective. Golden Age Black Canary was a PI, and the modern Black Canary must at least have some of that training. I wonder if Green Arrow's noted skill as an archer accounts for the extra influence he certainly does speechifying, but although I often agree with his politics, he's usually an ass and offends his potential allies. I guess it depends on the era. You you make some good points. If they're modeling the Black Canary from the 80s, that may not fit your idea of Black Canary now that we're in the 2010s. And Ollie is one abrasive dude. Uh, he'd have problems on the social end of things for sure, but that doesn't mean he's not smart, especially the way intelligence is used. In the game. So maybe the intelligence here is supposed to reflect his fabrication of trick arrows. Certainly, you would use intelligence in your gadgetry. And maybe also his ability to calculate angles and so on. Anyway, Chris Franklin uh, is up next. He says, I would also argue I never thought Ollie was as smart as Dinah. Technically smart for crafting weapons and calculating shots, perhaps, but... Common sense, no. Brian Linton says, I love this new episode format of comparing character sheets to their comic book source material. It's the sort of thing I used to do with the RPGs I collected as a teen. I'm looking forward to hearing from the next expert. And I guess uh, you're right, Brian. It's an activity that I think we've all done with licensed games, trying to compare the material with, you know, the sources. And I think I can announce that the next episode will also be a character profile. So uh, I'm not saying who, but... That is up next and before the end of the year, probably. Slobberknocker says, I would argue that both of their strengths are too high. I never understood the fascination of overstanding strengths for a character that re doesn't really use it. Black Canary uses martial arts, not strength, to damage our, our opponents. I'm not sure she would be higher than the three. Zatanna's strength should be no higher than a two. And really, her dex probably should not be higher than a four. That's how I see it. I could be wrong. And he loved the episode. And I don't think you're, he's wrong necessarily. If martial arts can be replaced into the strike damage anyway, does she really need the bench pressing element of strength? However, dex for Zatanna, for example, might be important for sleight of hand. So it really depends what the designers were looking at when they were crafting these characters. Rob Kelly uh, finally says, don't have much to say about this other than it was a lot of fun for this non-gamer. And really, that's all I care about, Rob. This little show is very niche. It's always been our goal not to alienate listeners who might just be interested in the characters or, you know, just crossing over from Cheerscast or something in, in that case, um, because, you know, Ryan's so popular. So if it worked for a non-gamer and someone not interested in gaming uh, who's just listening for the comic book content, then I think we did our job. Now, I should mention here that the Fire and Water Podcast Network now has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. There aren't a whole lot of Hero Points episodes. We're working on that. But the entire network has more than a thousand available shows. For the first three years, we were happy hosting uh, all of that stuff at our own cost. But it's getting outside of our price range. So if you like this content, want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation on Patreon. It even unlocks rewards, including a major goal that would affect this show. If you want to have a um, live, a lot of people have been asking for a live game with podcasters playing their favorite characters. You know, we've always, uh, we always said we'd be interested in doing it, but it's so complicated. We've always pushed it back, except if we hit that certain goal, 
then we'll have to do it. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, think about leaving a donation and we, it'd be much appreciated. Although I'll be sweating bullets trying to pull that off. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter where we are FW Podcasts. So until the next episode, let's roll. 